Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef, and today I'm joined by James Rath, who's going to be speaking on behalf of his wife, uh, Kate. Um, James's wife has had a, a very severe protracted withdrawal um, from benzodiazepines, probably you know, one of the worst I've heard of just based on the email that, that, that James sent in advance of this. And uh, he's kindly agreed to come on and share what happened and, and, and what they're going through. So James, thank you so much. Um, why don't you take us to the beginning? How, how did all of this start? Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I, I really appreciate it. And um, initially, my wife um, had uh, some difficulty sleeping. This was probably uh, about 15 years ago. And so she was prescribed uh, Ativan, one milligram of Ativan. She was in the modeling business and she had, um, you know, a very kind of hectic, uh, emotionally challenging <laughs> life. Mm-hmm. And so she had mild anxiety as well, so you know, getting to bed at night was a bit of a challenge. So she, she took the Ativan, one milligram every night, probably for about six years. Never had any <clears throat> adverse effects, um, cognitively, physically, emotionally. I mean, we never noticed anything and never thought about it. She just took it every night before bed, the same dose every night, and. Um, that was that. And in 2014, we uh, lost our youngest son. And um, he was in the first year of university. And um, that was the beginning of the, um, the prescribing of additional drugs. So um, when that happened, it was, of course, like, you know, the most devastating thing that could happen to any family. And um, so we, we were all, you know, involved in grief counseling. And, and um, I'll, I'll give you a short story. I, when I first went to the, to the person I was um, going to see for to help me um, work through the grieving process. I went to his office. It, I looked it up. On, I'd never been to a psychiatrist before, so I looked it up, and it said he did grief counseling and all this stuff. So I, I'm sitting in the... I got there about 40 minutes early, and I'm sitting in the chair and in the waiting room, and um, I noticed that 15 minutes went by, and a person came out, and then another person went in, and then I came in, and... Um, so after 40 minutes, I went in and I just told him what happened. And he said, well, I can write you a prescription for, and I was like, no, I'm here because I need to go through the grieving process for my, I lost my son and I don't, I don't want any medications. And, um, but for my wife, it was a much more different, um, result as, as she went for, um, counseling with her psychiatrist they they increased the dose of the Ativan 
and they added some other drugs. Um, Lex, she was on Lexapro and, and Ativan, so it went from two milligrams of Ativan to three milligrams of Ativan, and, um, and she was just continued to get worse. And we were all um, going to the, um, you know, the, the grieving counseling sessions and everything, my son, myself, and my wife. And she was really not able to, um, because of the medications, she wasn't able to properly process the grief. Um, and so I, I called, there was a program developed at Columbia University for complex grief counseling. Um, and so I thought, well, that would be, that sounds perfect. And then so she was enrolled in that. And after two sessions, the, <clears throat> the doctor said, you know, I would love to be able to help you, but because of the medications that you're on, I can't really access the emotions and, the, and, and what's buried down beneath because there's a wall there. So, you know, when you um, are able to get off the medications, then we can, then we can do this. So anyway, that was, that was the beginning of the end as um, she continued to um, struggle, uh, you know, with the, with the grieving because she wasn't able to work through it. And I mean, she was still functional. She was, you know, doing, able to do everything. She didn't really have any physical impairment. She did have, you know, um, more depression and anxiety. Um, and her, her doctors kept increasing the medications and adding other medications. You know, they tried Adderall, they tried um, uh, uh, lithium, they tried, you know, and she's not bipolar, but um, she started uh, acting bipolar when they gave her the medications. And then so they immediately took her off those medications. But as, as time progressed, she, um, you know, they continued to um, prescribe a cocktail of a variety of medications uh, that were, in my opinion, they, they weren't, they weren't doing the job. They were you know, they would give her the Adderall and then they would give her something to help um, calm down from the Adderall. And then they would, you know, give her, they, they kept increasing and increasing. And they, they switched from, um, well, they, there was a period where she was on uh, um, Ativan and Clonopin. And then they would increase the Clonopin and reduce the Ativan. And, and then she was on all Clonopin because they said, oh, this is going to help you. And you know, it's longer acting, it'll be more um, evenly distributed in your system. And, and, and then I started going to the, um, <clears throat> the meetings with the psychiatrist with her because I was really concerned because I'd seen some, her, everything was increasing. All of her, you know, natural, emotional, uh, physiological, um, capabilities were deteriorating and so I started going to the meetings and and I asked them I said you know it seems like this this is not working and we should try maybe to um, get her off of these medications instead of because he kept saying you know and he said well you know we we have to get her stable and I was like well 
there's she's the more medications that she's prescribed and she's uh, you know in her system it seems like she's getting more unstable like we this has been over a period of three years <clears throat> after my son passed away and things just kept getting worse and worse and then probably after you know five or six years we started to notice some um, some gastrointestinal uh, issues, some um, some cognitive impairments, you know, they mild at first, but then they also continued to, to increase along with her depression and anxiety. And it was like, this, this is, this is not right. You know, initially, yes, the, the medications did, did, um, provide her with some relief from the anxiety and the depression. But after uh, a couple of years, I think they were, they were doing the opposite. They were adding to it. And then um, in, in 2020, um, she started experiencing, um, this is six years after my son passed away. She started experiencing interdose withdrawal and the um, physical symptoms became much worse. She, uh, you know, gastrointestinal issues and, and cognitive issues. I mean, my wife is an intelligent, you know, uh, wonderful woman, and she couldn't barely, you know, select a movie on Netflix. I mean, it's just, it was so obviously not her. Um, so... You know, we, we thought, and we didn't know, I mean, I was asking, you know, I was really concerned because, I mean, we had a, supposedly a really good psychopharmacologist, you know, Yale graduate, the whole thing, um, expensive. And, you know, I, we both had a an initial trust and, you know, we're trusting him. Like, I don't know anything about medications or, I mean, um, and I hadn't really been exposed to, I mean, I had, I had never taken any medications, but I've never really been exposed to any, any bad uh, press or anything about this. And, but I began, you know, just by um, observing my wife and the changes that have manifested in her over the last few years that, you know, I, I just kept asking, like, I don't think this is right. Like, I think, you know, we have to take a different approach because you've been saying, you know, that she has to be stable. And, and as we, as we meet every month, you increase the dosage and she's becoming more unstable. So, um, you know, at, at one point uh, we decided, you know, we, we have to start reading about this or something is wrong. Like, you know, I, I asked the guy, I said, you know, is there, is there any risk or, um, no, no, you can take this, you know, for the rest of your life. And my wife, my wife is like, well, I like to have a glass of wine at night. Is that, is that okay? Oh yeah, sure. You can have a glass of wine. Like <laughs> That's the worst thing you can do. I mean, when she started taking a glass of wine, I was like, no, you can't have any wine because I can see what it's doing to you. You know, your, your speech is slurring. Your, you know, it's, it's not good. I don't care what the guy says. And then I began to be um, not so trusting, you know, and so we started investigating and, you know, we um, somehow 
came in touch with um, Dr. Ashton and her, you know, we, we started reading more about it. And, but the, the um, I actually started tapering my wife at a very slow rate. I have a, I'm a baker, so I had a, a very accurate scale for yeast because it, yeah. and it was like to one one thousandth of a gram so i could shave off the one pill was like 597 thousandths of a gram so i would shave off you know a few thousandths of a gram and we got down to about 23 percent. she didn't have any like not no issues or anything and then her mother passed away and so we went there and then um that was kind of a uh you know the a very alarming trigger for everything because she actually went all back up to four milligrams of clonopin and um, you know it just it, it wasn't going well and so we had some um, some contacts at uh, Johns Hopkins and we thought that uh maybe you know maybe it's a good idea we had talked to them and they said you know we do a you know a slope taper and um although i didn't i wasn't uh wise enough to ask them what that meant but um to, because to johns hopkins a slow taper is four weeks so that is not slow i mean it would have taken me the, the schedule that i had was about 18 to 24 months which, you know, I, I just, I'm really regretful that I didn't um, stick with that. But anyway, um, so there had been a couple of, I, I, I kind of left out a few details, but along the way before she got to Hopkins, her psychiatrist also recommended electroshock treatment. So she had that. She had a ketamine injections, um, you know, and... They, they so, were so they they thought that she was just depressed, essentially that her depression yes. was evolving. You know, they never considered that the medications, even though you saw it happening that way, were were making her worse. Yeah, there was no, you know, they would just come up with, well, you know, I mean, I think your wife might be a little bipolar. She's got, you know, chronic um, irresponse. I, I think it was um, treatment yeah. resistant. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, this is what we have to do to get her stable. But, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just felt like, you and, know. And I, may I ask, um, how old was she in 2014? In 2014, let me see, that was, uh, she was um, 50, she's 65 now. So, um, you know. Yes, that, I mean, that makes, I mean, it makes no sense for her to develop bipolar disorder at age 55. No. She wasn't you know. bipolar. She, she never exhibited any bipolar yeah. um, behaviors except for when they gave her the lithium. Because we were in a store together, and um, I, I, she started talking to the guy like I'd never seen her speak that way before. And I, I went and I called the, the psychiatrist right away and told him, look, this is, this is, this is not her. This is in no oh. way or not even close. She would never have said the things she was saying. And I knew it was, you know, so we stopped that. And, um, but even just the, you know, her, her normal personality was was changing. Even her voice, the inflection in her voice was changing. Like all these things are changing, and I can't believe like these guys didn't notice it. Like it, it was very 
um, you know, it was just, I, I didn't know what to do. And I couldn't find anyone because I wasn't really um, educated on any of this. Like I didn't, I, you know, I, they kept telling me, no, there's no risk or, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing to worry about. This is a completely harmless um, medication. And, um, you know, now I certainly know the difference. I mean, I went to the dentist the other day and uh, a couple of weeks ago for an extraction and they gave me a form to fill out, you know, that was, uh, that I was confirming that I understood all the risks. You know, this is a simple tooth extraction. And, and yet there was never any, they, they gave her completely misleading information. Like there was no danger in this whatsoever. And I don't, I really believe that all of these guys, they're, they're very nice people and everything, but they're completely misinformed. And, and I don't think it was in any way intentional, like they were, you know, trying to do this. It, it was just that, and I, and I think it's really, um, you know, a systemic issue with the level of knowledge of all these medications. You know, I, I mean, I don't, I don't really know much about the training of, of psychopharmacologists, but um, I think I heard your wife mention that she never heard anything really about the long-term effects of uh, benzodiazepines and, and there was, there, and there's no studies, you know, so. Well, that, what that, that's was, exactly it, you know. When he's saying, you know, no, there's no risk of this. I mean, how do you know? You know, the the studies of benzodiazepines, they're all like two months long max. Right. At this point, your wife has been on it for five to six years. You know, no one knows. You know, no, no one really knows after that. And so I think what's happened in many ways is that the the medical professionals have been influenced by what's in the journals and influenced by what they see at conferences and and oftentimes that is just driven by groups who have the resources to get people at conferences and to get publications out and and usually it's pharmaceutical companies and usually you know the the paper finishes something like this you know clonopin appears to be a safe and effective treatment for you know depression and anxiety with you know, minimal long-term risks, something right. like that, just some throwaway statement. You hear that enough times and um, that's, that's just what you think, you know, and, and there's, no, there's no groups out there in a, who in a big coordinated effort are trying to get speakers into different pharmacology conferences around the country who are trying to get, pump out, you know, papers like a pharmaceutical company would to promote a drug where they say we're going to get 10 publications in the 10 leading journals over the next two years. There's no group that does that for side effects. So there's, there's this massive skewing of medical information where it's just like, oh, these drugs are, are safe and effective and generally well tolerated. And that's how the majority of prescribers see these medications because they just hear it again and again and again. And... Um, and they, they, they wouldn't even know a side effect. You know, they wouldn't even be able to recognize the side effect if they saw it. Yeah. 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 Well, when you're, you know, you're sitting at a table eating the Chateaubriand and having a nice glass of wine and the, and the pharmaceutical um, representative is telling you all about the benefits and all that. 
Um, yeah, the, I mean, they're off the hook because they say don't use the drug for more than four weeks, which is, you know, that's that's the best advice anyone could give. However, you know, I don't know, there's probably 350 million people that are taking um, benzodiazepines worldwide. And I'm, I'm absolutely sure, although it's hard to find information that's, um, you know, reliable, that there's a very small percentage are, are taking it for less than four weeks or taking it, you know, if they have to go on an airline flight or something. I mean, all of the, the horde, I mean, I've never, I, I was relatively um, sheltered from the degree of suffering that exists. And, and I, I mean, I, 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 just, I just can't believe that in our society that, um, that this can be allowed to, I mean, I, mean, I, I hate to say it, but I, I kind of, I can almost see this as, as equally disturbing and horrible as something like the Holocaust, because it's just horrible, the treatment that these, the suffering that these people are going through. And I'm sure they're, you know, I think Dr. Ashton had, um, had kind of estimated that five to 10% of of the people that are on benzodiazepines may be experiencing this kind of a um, withdrawal issues. So if there's, you know, 300 million people, that's a lot of people. That's millions of people that are going through this. And, and, and the data is very skewed because they're, you know, when, when they had the Oxycontin crisis, um, it was very easy because so many people, they would die and then they would say, yes, they overdosed from, you know, Oxycontin. It, but with benzos, it's much more discreet and it's much more um, hidden. Um, my, my wife's um, cousin's son was on benzo. He was, I think, 39 years old. He was on benzodiazepines for quite some time, and his doctor said, you know, we really can't give these anymore, and I think it would be a good idea if you stop them. And he stopped them, and a week later, he hung himself. And, um, and there's so many people that are, uh, a friend of mine had his father in the hospital down here, and... Um, and, you know, they called him and said, you know, your, your father's exhibiting uh, very uh, agitated, aggressive behavior. And so he went there and he started investigating. Yeah, because they took him off his meds and they never, they think, okay, well, you know, he doesn't really need these here. And, and that's the thing. I mean, it's all, the, the, you know, there's so many medications, not just benzodiazepines, but other, you know, antidepressants and other things that you can't just stop. And um, and expect that the person is just going to be normal. I mean, um, it's it's very sad the the level of um, you know misinformation that the medical community has. I mean, I I was just shocked, and I feel so um, bad for all these people when I hear their stories. I mean, I I just can't believe it. It's just so horrendous that we would allow this to happen in, you know, in this, you know, century, it just seems so, uh, I don't know. I mean, it, 
people are storming the Capitol for, for things, you know, like that. I mean, it, it seems like we should be more um, able to bring about change to help these these suffering people because they're, you know, I don't know how it works. I mean, I've written to the FDA. I've, you know, called all kinds of people. And, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of work that's being done very diligently. And, but I mean, I don't know. It just seems like so um, urgent, the, the degree of suffering that people are going. And people are losing, you know, years of their lives. They're losing their families. They're losing their friends. They're losing their, you know, um, jobs and and their joy, and and it seems like we're just helpless. Like there's no one. I couldn't find anyone to talk to that knew what I was going through to help me manage her health care. You know, when I when I go the that, that, that's the other thing. I mean, <clears throat> we had after. Well, let me let me continue on my timeline. Sure. So okay. I'm, I'm getting sorry. I'm getting distracted, but. Um, so Johns Hopkins, yeah. Johns Hopkins. What that was in February of 2022, and um, we thought that you know this is one of the best hospitals in the country or in the world or whatever. They're very, you know, uh, well known and and for all that they do, and they do a lot of wonderful stuff. Um, so she um, went there in February of 2022. They, um, you know, told her, you know, this is this is the plan. We're gonna, you know, take you off it slowly, and and then so in the first week they took her off. They took away one milligram, so she's on four milligrams of clonopin, and a uh, hundred and fifty milligrams of um, um, an antidepressant. Um, I forget the name of it, but and Effexor probably right. Maybe or, no, or uh, Zoloft. Zoloft, thank yeah. you, yes. Okay. Um, so they took away the first milligram, and, um, and you know, that wasn't, that wasn't horrible. But, I mean, I was talking to the guys, the psychiatrists, and saying, you know, why, why, can't, we, why can't we just work out a, a program where it's going to be slower? Because he, he was like... No, we, you know, I think the best thing for her is that we get her off of this and we get her off quickly and because then she'll be done with it. And I, I was, you know, I was under the impression that this was going to be a slow kind of a partnership that they were going to get it started there, monitor her, her and then send her home and then we would finish it at home. Um, because I, I knew that there's no way she's going to stay in the hospital for, you know, a, a year or whatever, it, you know, whatever the program took and so as she was she was in agony there she wasn't sleeping she wasn't eating well she wasn't you know um, and the doctor's calling me and saying you know her speech is much more clear and I noticed this and you know she is she's she seems like she's bipolar so we're going to give her some lithium and I was like well she's not bipolar and um, then she's then they said well she you know she's She's very thin and she's not eating. I said, well, she's eaten. She usually weighs a hundred. She did. She was very thin and her BMI was very low. And But it wasn't because of anything other than the medications. I mean, she was a very healthy, like, 
you know, person, we are rock climbing and hiking and bicycling and kayaking and, and doing all these things prior, even though she was going through the, you know, withdrawal and the, you know, the stress of that. She was very functional. But after, um, so they took her off of one milligram a week for four weeks. That was it. That was the program. And, and she was just calling me, you know, just crying and, and you know, just the, the, the treatment there was, was, not, was subhumane. And I had a couple of video conferences with the, with the psychiatric staff there. And uh, it, was, it was pretty humiliating for me because they just pretty much, you know, I was kind of telling them what I knew about, you know, the Ashton method and everything. And they, they were just like sitting there with their arms folded and they were just kind of like, yeah, okay, buddy. Yeah. Um, we know we're Johns Hopkins. We know. And they were telling me, you know, and this is, and I found out from talking to other people and, and she was on Meyer six, like the gentleman you, and she, she never got an opportunity to work with him, but um, mm -hmm. so they, they all are completely convinced that the benzodiazepine withdrawal is, a, is exactly the same as alcohol withdrawal. And although, yes, it does have some commonalities in the receptors and all that stuff, but it is in no way um, equal to, to alcohol withdrawal. And they kept telling her, um, so after she's off the medication, this is um, in March now, she, she, she started on February 2nd, and then we're in the first week of March. And they, they just, you know, she's, she's got the blinds drawn and she can't really, um, she, she's not going to group and she's sitting there shivering and she's her whole, she told me she had to wash her clothes every day because everything was just soaking wet. And um, they, would, they would say like, oh, I don't know what's wrong with you, but, but you should be going to group now. And, um, and, they, and they were telling me, and even, even, you know, they're even passing all this information on because, you know, it's a teaching hospital and they have all the interns there and they're all kind of learning the same thing. You know, they're, um, th th this is, they're telling you, th your symptoms have nothing to do with benzo withdrawal. There's something else going on. And, um, you know, maybe you have an eating disorder and that's doing it. We should send you up to the eating disorder floor. Um, so she wasn't, you know, she started, she said, I started eating everything, even though it was the horrible food. She was eating like two meals a day and trying to, you know, make them happy with, you know, getting, you know, and I, I don't have any problem with that. I, I agree. She should have a higher BMI, but they were completely denying her what she was exhibiting and, and telling her it's not, it's not nothing to do with the benzo withdrawal. You're off the benzos now. And so she was there for about 10 weeks and she just couldn't take it anymore. And so I went and picked her up. She tried, I think she tried to escape one night and because she just couldn't deal with it any longer. And because they just kept feeding her more and more medications. They put her on 2,400 milligrams of gabapentin. Oh. They, uh, <clears throat> and, and she had never taken gabapentin. She, she, well, she did take it once, but she was like, oh, I'm not. Uh, I don't need this medication. And so, so we came home. Uh, I went there and, and brought her home. And from, from that time on, she's been bedridden. She's had excruciating, just throbbing head pain. I mean, she, she, she wrote, 
she's got like 30 something symptoms here, but the, the biggest one was explosive, excruciating head pain, which started two days after her last dose um, and continues to this day. And, it, and it's like she can't find a spot laying in bed where, you know, she's just got to find like the perfect spot where she can um, get the pain to a level that's tolerable. And it's just, um, you know, it's like she describes it as, um, you know, it's the strangest pain and pressure. It feels like there's a vice around my head and it's being tightened. And um, like, and there's like somebody with an ice pick poking her in the eye and from the back of the eye. And it's just like constant. And it got to a point where um, after we were home for uh, a few, well, a few, I think about eight months or so, she went to the emergency room. She said, I just can't take it anymore. Like, I don't know what to do. And um, she, she had uh, one of the doctors down here did give her some, because we were, we were talking to a doctor down here and he gave her some buprenorphine. And he said, you know, maybe this will, will help the pain. And um, so she did start taking that and it, it did help a little bit because she wasn't sleeping, she wasn't doing anything. And so it got to a point so bad one day that she said, I have to go, I, I don't know what to do. And I, I didn't know what to do either. Like I'm, I called, you know, the psychiatrists and other, like her old psychiatrist and some other, um, and they said, well, you know, there's really nothing, I can't tell you what to do. You can either go back on the medication or, you know, I don't know what to tell you. So I didn't really have any, so, you know, I didn't know a pathway to proceed. And uh, I mean, I just, it's its really hard to watch your wife suffer like that. And it's just, I mean, because I'm kind of like, I always want to fix things, you know, I want to get them, get them, or at least make somebody so they can bear the pain. I mean, I've, I've had kidney stones before and and it's and she described it she said well it's like imagine yourself having a kidney stone passing forever you know and it's like it's it's not I could never I mean I'm I don't have as much courage as she does because I, I don't think I would ever have been able to endure the pain that she's endured over over the last 16 months and so she, she took an ambulance because she said, you know, I can't, I just can't stand up. I can't sit up. I can't. So she took an ambulance to the hospital. So she's in the hospital, a local hospital here. And she's in the hospital for, in the waiting room for, for about six hours. And she was complaining about the pain, you know, just this horrible pain. And um, so they finally get her in there and they're, you know, they did some CAT scans and ultrasounds and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And they didn't, weren't able to finish the testing because by the time she got actually started on the CAT scans and everything, it was, you know, late, at, very late at night. And so she stayed over. And so during the stay, she's, the, the social worker comes in and she's describing the, you know, she's like, I don't, I don't know what I can do. Like, I just can't stand this. I, I just want my pain to end. You know, I just can't stand it any longer. So she kind of intimated that um, she was suicidal. And so immediately they bake, they baker acted her, 
which is, I think, similar to what uh, happened to Matt um, Marin. And, and that was like, I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. So I, I, I went down there, I met with a psychiatrist and, and they were saying, well, you know, she's, your wife is psychotic. She's severely um, unstable. And I was like, oh, you know, they gave her ketamine. They gave her some, they gave her some other medications too that, um, and I, I told them like, they were gonna give her benzos. And I was like, no, you, you can't do this. You can't give her any medications. And um, I'm talking to the psychiatrist and I said, okay, she's Baker acted. That's a 72 hour hold. And he goes, oh no, well, we took her off the hold. We took her off the Baker Act, but she still is required to stay here until she satisfies two requirements. One, that she um, achieves a BMI of 15. And the other, that she takes um, the appropriate medications. So I was like, well, I agree with you on the BMI. I got no problems with that. What medications are you talking about? And he goes, well, it's going to be a psych, you know, psychotropic medication. And I was like, but that's why she's here. You know, the medications are how she got into this mess. And so I started explaining, you know, from my perspective. And so the psychiatrist said, well, what is your background? You know, so when I told him, well, I was a partner in a bakery and all, he was going, oh, so I understand where you're, where you're getting your information from. So he pr pretty much dismissed that and wouldn't listen to me anymore. I said, well, why don't you tell me the medication and the dosage and I'll consider it because otherwise I, I can't consider it. So I went back on the third day of the, um, I was going there every day and they, they had her under guard in her room, you know, and um, and monitored extremely closely. And they would come in every day and, and, and say things like, well, your speech is, is nonlinear. And, and, and this guy's like all over the place with, with what he's telling me. And he's telling her that her speech is nonlinear. Anyway, so on the third day I asked him, okay, so what is the medication and the dosage? And he goes, well, that's it. The Baker Act is now in effect and she's going off to um, a institution. And I was like, what? Like, how can you do that? And he, and he goes, well, that's it. And there's no, um, there's no coming back. I was like, well, why did you change the plan? You were going to tell me the medication. And he goes, that's, that's it. So at this point, I was like, oh, I have to get in it. They were, they were sending her to probably the, the, the worst place in Florida, um, just horrible. And so I hired an attorney, it cost me almost $10,000. She was in there the day before, I was like, I gotta get her out of here. Her birthday is in two days. And when I talked to her, when I talked to the institution, they told me um, that she was going to be released in a few days. And then when I talked to them again, they said, well, she's going to be transferred to another facility. And so <clears throat> I was like, I was speaking with the attorney. I said, you have to get the court order to the, to the judge like tonight. And they worked overtime. They got it there. And they said I could go pick her up. And when I called her, she was on her way to, um, to shock treatment. So that, that's where they were sending her. And um, it, was, it was just 
you know, the, the, oh my God. I, mean, I just can't believe it. So uh, the residual from all that is, you know, when we go to, to visit like a normal doctor, he'll look at the chart and he'll go, oh, so you're, you've been Baker acted. And, um, and, then, and then he sees, I mean, I've been reading the, the notes that they put in the file because they post them on the, on the, um, on the site. And it, it's, it would say like, patient allegedly reports never having any opiates. However, she's uh, taking buprenorphine, you know, things like that. And uh, it, it was just humiliating. I mean, instead of trying to help her, you know, they're, um, I mean, it was, it's very um, prejudicial when you have all those things in your chart and you don't really, I mean, I, I was, I had always been extremely grateful for the medical treatment that I had received my whole life in New York. And it's, a, I mean, I have, I just, I went back three weeks ago to go to Sloan Kettering because I had a surgery in 2005 and the people there are just amazing. And they they treat you with dignity and they're just professionals and all the, all the hospitals I've been in and other, you know, for just things like breaking your arm or whatever it is. Um, I mean, I was never in long term other than the, the surgery, but they treat you with dignity no matter where you, if you're coming off the street or if you're a CEO, you know, it doesn't really matter here. It's a little bit less, um, you know, there's no, there's not equal treatment. So if you have the concierge, you know, health treatment, you get much better care. And if you, you know, depends on where, where you are, but, um, trying to navigate um, the what how to how to manage someone's health care is was really frustrating for me and I couldn't find anyone to that was knowledgeable enough to to give me advice on you know what what can I do so I just I mean uh, I, I didn't know what to do and um, you know so it's yeah, now we, we've, we've gone for all kinds of, um, you know, because in the beginning you have some, you have more hope, like, okay, well, maybe it's this, and maybe this is contributing to the pain, and maybe there's some, I mean, neither one of us could believe that all of this is coming from the benzos. I mean, I was almost like, uh, you know, you, like Hopkins, like, it's got to be something else, like, it could, nothing could be this um, impactful from stopping a medication. Like I, I was, you know, relatively uninformed at that point on what a an abrupt um, halt to the medications. I mean, I knew some information from reading, you know, Dr. Ashton and everything, but I re wasn't really, you know, how you read something and you don't really <laughs> it doesn't impact your life until you until you get it and and then um, and then it really you know I, I mean looking back I, I I realized that you know how many mistakes we made and how foolish we were in the decisions but it was it was just you know we were we were navigating with our eyes closed and it was just so difficult to um, because there's no, you know, I mean, I play tennis with a few doctors and they were like, they didn't really know. And um, I tried calling the people at, 
at Hopkins, they didn't really, they don't really do any follow-ups on any of their patients. You know, I called the, the guy who was, who was the head psychiatrist and, um, you know, I would tell him things like uh, try and help him. I'm not never criticizing in any way, you know, what they're doing, just trying to see if I could open a little door that they might, because the, the, the treatment goes on and they're, continuing to propagate all the wrong information to their interns and to their staff. And, and to me, I mean, I asked, I asked Dr. Ritvo if she could go out there and give him, you know, because uh, I know she speaks everywhere, but she, she couldn't do it. But um, I mean, someone, it, uh, you know, sure. I, don't, I don't know what the solution is, but it seems like with all the, the, the multitude of people that are suffering so, that, you know, something, I don't know whether, you know, maybe uh, World Benzo Day should be, you know, getting 10,000 people outside the FDA or outside the big pharma. And, and do, it, it seems like it just demands, because none of, none of us and, or people in the, you know, the, the regular medical community have the, the wherewithal to do the research that's really necessary. I mean, that's why Dr. Ashton got, you know, they didn't want her doing that. So they didn't fund her, you know, ongoing research when she was trying to get deeper into what are the long-term effects. You know, she could only do so much with the, with the funds that she had, but no one wanted that to happen because, you know, I'm sure Hoffman and Rodel Roche and other people are like, no, we don't really, <laughs> you know, but cool. it, I think it would, it just seems like we we have to demand that um, you know like you can't I don't I don't know how you can you know create a medicine that people use for ten years and you only say what happens after four weeks and then it's like well you know I told you not to use it for four weeks or at least if it if it's designed to be used for four weeks then then there should be a rule that psychiatrists can't prescribe it for more than four weeks and then, you know, then get someone different... has to sign some kind of waiver or something like that you know this extra level of risk right, mitigation something. and informed yeah. consent because yeah they're just at the minimum it's like they don't care you know um um because, I mean, all, all of this stuff, you know, BIC and the Benzodiazepine Alliance and these groups, these are all like, like they're volunteer groups, mostly self-funded, you know, just running off donations. And, and then you have some companies out there, you know, these are billion-dollar companies not contributing to any of the risk mitigation. I mean, the, the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices, you know, they publish all the guidelines you know, about protracted withdrawal syndrome, you know, how to withdraw people, withdraw people successfully, all of it's funded by donations from patients. And isn't that crazy? You know, yeah. here, here you have, you know, companies making billions of dollars and they're not contributing to that effort at all. You know, it's, yeah, yeah, completely I like mean, asleep at the wheel and, and, and not caring at all. I mean, you worked at the FDA, is it, yeah. isn't, I mean, it just seems to. I don't. I don't know how the inner workings go, but ask, it just ask me seems, anything. Yeah, it, it just yeah. seems like I'm sure there's hundreds of thousands of complaints about the the residual effects of benzodiazepines, and I, what I don't understand is, you know, if I, if if there's 250 complaints from Burger King about you know a bad burger, they're on the news. You know, yeah. they're getting to it. But here we have hundreds of thousands. And, and what's the worst that could happen from, you know, a bad burger? So, you know, you're in the bathroom for three or four days. 
these these people are losing years and years. I, I mean, I heard that interview with that uh, pilot that you, oh my gosh, like, how can you, you can't retrieve seven years of your life, you know, and, and it's, it just, I mean, my wife is, is crying four or five hours a day. Just, she is such a social person. She hasn't been able to communicate with, you know, her friends. She has tons of friends. She's such a social person. It is like the essence of who she is. And um, she used to talk to my son every day. She can't talk to him. She can't even talk to me for more than 15 minutes before she has to lay down. I mean, and, and just get in that position with no sound, no light, no stimulation whatsoever. So she can just bear the pain and, and get through it. And then getting up like that every day, you know, it, it's like, uh, I don't know. I, don't, I really don't understand how she can endure it. I mean, and the hope is dwindling because... You know, there's there's no real solution for it, and um, you know, just time. <clears throat> but it's like if somebody told me uh, I had, you know, to to hang on to this kidney stone for anywhere between three and five years, like I don't know, I think I'd be, you know, having a very difficult challenge and um, asking for divine intervention because I definitely would do not have the endurance to be able to, you know, withstand that pain. And I've heard so many stories where, you know, people are just completely losing all of the um, the joy that they had in their life. And uh, it's just heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. And I mean, and that's why I mean it's it's it, I mean it's not of unheard of in the community for people to end up going to Belgium or Switzerland and doing the physician assisted dying programs. It's not uncommon for them yeah. to reach out to the I guess it's the Hemlock Society or, or whatever their name is now in the U.S. And I mean you hear all sorts of these things that are horrific where it's like you know one day someone's life was was okay and then within a year you know they're they're talking to you know programs yeah. in Switzerland and and Belgium. I mean, I mean, I mean, it's it's just. Um, I mean, it's. I mean, it's a nightmare. I mean, it's it's this it's it's a horror movie, really. How how quickly things can change, and um, I, I mean, I cannot imagine. Um, gosh, the pain that you've endured, that you've both endured over the over the last um, sounds like eight years or something like that. What a um, you know, I, I, I feel like life looks different after you go, after you go through such tragedy. I mean, it's, you really see how, I guess, how bad, how bad things can get and, and, and just so, and so quickly. I mean, it, you know, it's, I guess the world is never the same. I'd have to say after you go through something like this. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, gives you a different perspective. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, and to know that there's so many people going through this, that that's the real injustice that is, um, you know, and I, I was reading the projections for um, benzodiazepine sales in 2024, they're going up, <laughs> you know, so. Well, they, uh, they say a lot of people started them during COVID because it was clearly a very stressful time, you know, so. Yeah. So there's going to be, 
it, 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 it's not ending, even though it's been well known since I'd say probably like the late 60s, early 70s, that they they cause a lot of dependence and no one should be on them for lo- longer than, you know, a couple of months like Max, you know, and right. dis- despite that, like it um, still still being used like crazy. And, 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 you know, the thing is, it's like not everyone has the problems coming off of them, but there's enough oh, people no. who, who their, their, their whole life is completely ruined. Um, and, and so, you know, with Kate, has she made any progress at all in the last 16 months? Do you see any movement or is it, or is it just, is it worsening? Is it the same? What do you see? Oh, it's absolutely worsening. Okay. Um, you know, we had, um, expected that the, uh, because many people have said, reported that, you know, things get better after, uh, you know, a year after 18 months, and you should definitely see some improvements. And um, we've, we've seen significant deterioration. And a part of it is um, after maybe uh, seven months or so, she developed pudendal neuralgia. And that in itself is, although secondary to the head pain, is completely debilitating. I mean, there's people, I've been learning about pudendal neuralgia now, but so there's, there's a whole community of people who have pudendal neuralgia and also bedridden and um, not everyone, but there, it certainly has a really serious impact on your life. And the first line of treatment for pudendal neuralgia is benzodiazepines. So, because it relaxes the pelvic floor region and the tension that's caused by um, probably, you know, coming off. She never had it before. Probably, you know, her whole um, pelvic floor is just a tense muscle. And so that's, I'm sure, impacting the pudendal nerve and causing severe pain. She's also had... um, you know, she got a UTI and um, the, the doctor said, you know, you have to have antibiotics. You have to. And so, you know, we, we asked that they not be the fluoroquinolones variety. Yeah. And, um, and they gave her ones that still, they, they had a serious neurological. And I mean, she was just like, you know, pins and needles all over the place and just like really throbbing head pain. And everything was exaggerated. Like, I mean, I, I put, a, we have a loft upstairs and I was upstairs and I took just one spray. Uh, I was cleaning the counter and she was like in the, in the, all the way in the far end of the house, you could smell it. And it's so wow. everything is hyper you know, like a sound, uh, you know, a plate touching the table, uh, anything. It's just her her room is completely darkened, like not even one little light in there. And I mean, there uh, <clears throat> there have been some some windows where, you know, after like six months, I was going in there in the morning. She was sleeping at night. I was going in there in the morning. We have cappuccinos together and, and talk and um and then, you know, for maybe 20 minutes or so, and then um, 
and then that stopped and she was unable to do that she because her whole schedule got rearranged her pain started shifting she the, the pelvic pain started coming she couldn't take the pelvic pain anymore because it was so intense so we went to a um uh a pelvic doctor and they injected some um they did some injections in it and they had steroids in it so that was uh, another um kind of a you know setback Set yeah yeah <clears throat> so um but there's so many things that you know will will set you back i mean <laughs> it's like i looked at that list and it's you know, you can't take Advil, you can't take, you know, I mean, it's just, what do you do? Like she, she had one of her um, crowns fall off. And so she's got to go to the dentist. She can't, she, going to the dentist is an impossibility right now anyway, because she can't sit up. She can't even, she stands up for about five minutes to eat and then she has to run back to bed and then she'll come out and eat for five minutes and go back to bed. I mean, it's just uh, horrible um, and, and what did the what what has she been diagnosed with from the physician she's seen seen in the last you know year when when you tell them like how she's bed bound now and hypersensitive to everything like how do they make sense of it? Um, well, that none of them believe anything about the. Um, the although we did find one doctor um, who was a vascular surgeon um, because she's trying to get the pain reduced in her pelvic floor. And he said, when we were telling him about this, he goes, oh, I know what you're talking about. My mother, who is 80 something years old, went in and they took her off. She was on benzodiazepines. They took her off and she went berserk. Like, I didn't know what was happening to her. Her whole personality changed. And we put her back on him right away and then she returned to normal. Oh, God. And so he, at least he understood you know, what the consequences of taking someone off. You know, they took her off right away. They just stopped them. And she'd probably been taking them for 10, 15 years. And they just stopped, like, immediately. I mean, this happens all the time. We, we found out my father-in-law had to go to the hospital and um, for some uh, heart issue. And they took him off the medications. And they called him. They said, you know, Mr. Conway's becoming quite aggressive and agitated and then we found out yeah well they took him off his medications <laughs> he's been on them for like 20 years and they just like bam took him off and 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 then they you know they blamed they shipped him they shipped him out of the facility because they said you know he's becoming quite aggressive and agitated uh, off to inpatient psychiatry to get gosh. put on some antipsychotics you know <laughs> you know and oh, so. it's just, but i mean it's just uh yeah, it's, I think the whole system is is broken. I mean, I couldn't believe that <clears throat> after coming out of Hopkins. So I, I saw the bill. You know, it was over four hundred thousand dollars. And oh my god, they didn't call her once to see how she was doing. You know, I called them, but they didn't call me. You know, you would think after ten weeks, they would. You know, I took my dog to the vet. They call me the next day. Hey, how's Walter doing? You know, and he's there for like a simple thing, you know. And uh, doctors, they just don't do it anymore. I remember when I was a kid, you know, my doctor knew everything about me. He knew my friends. He knew what I had to eat. He knew what I, what I liked to do for hobbies. He, you know, they knew everything. 
<clears throat> now it's like they don't really have the time. You know, I, I went to a gastroenterologist because I tried to find one out here instead of going back to Sloan. And I handed him the booklet and he said, you know, I, I don't have time to read this stuff. I, re I really can't do it. And so I was like, well, okay, but I can't, you know, if you don't care enough to, to do that, then I'm just going to go back to my You I'll can't, can't really help me York. then, you know. If yeah. yeah. But I understand it's not all their fault. It's just that, you know, they have 15 cubicles and each one has 15 minutes. And mostly you, you, you know, you see the nurse practitioner for most of the time. And then the doctor comes in for like a minute and a half. And that's, that's what it is. I mean, I heard them. I overheard them talking in, in, the, in my chiropractor's office and they were talking about, you know, patient throughput and how they need to get it um, moving a little up and we got to get the revenue. And, and I'm thinking, you know, this is just like the production line. Would, you know, would, if, you were, if you were Johns Hopkins, like, why wouldn't you be interested in following up? On, on just to see, like, you know, for your own, did what we did help you? I mean, I thought that was the, you know, the intention of medicine is to help people. So if, it, if it's just to prescribe a medication or, you know, and you don't really care what the outcome is, then, <clears throat> you know, where, I, I don't know. I just think it's broken, very broken. I mean, there's still well, it's so not. It's so not about the patient anymore. I think we, we, you know, it used to be back in your day. I mean, that the, sounds like your doctors really cared about their relationship with you. Absolutely. And now it doesn't seem like the relationship matters at all. You know, right to the point where you go spend you know a couple of months there, really getting to know the team, and they don't even call you back afterwards. It's just like. I mean, it's so yeah. imp impersonal now, like, and that there's no real relationship. I, 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 t I tend to think of it as, as it's become really like a production line. You know, it's like, yeah, how can, how can exactly. we just like process this person through the clinic? If this, then that, you know, see you in, in, in this many days. It's, it's just, I mean, it, that's the theme that you hear in the story. I mean, your son passes away and within one visit, they're trying to give you a medication you know, and yeah. it's like, I mean, that's, <laughs> it, it's crazy, you know, um, without any thought for the long-term consequences, you know, the fact that you might become dependent on it. It's not even, you know, you know, Hey, you know, there's, there's options for this. You know, some people might tend to one medications, other people want to get through it with family support and time, you know, whichever way kind of feels right to you. I'd be happy to have that conversation, but it's like, Oh, this is easier. You know, I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to listen to the pain, you know, of, of right. this situation. I can just say, well, you know, I could give you this medication, you know, and it's just this distance, you know, there's not like, you know, how, like, what was that like for you? You know, tell me about your pain. It's like, no, you know, just, you know, t take this thing. And it's, I mean, that's psychiatry these days. Uh, and it's very sad. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's got to be transformed at some point because you just have to look at the results. Everybody's more depressed, more anxious, more, you know, we have more suicides and, you know, nothing, it's not working. I mean, ever since the, uh, you know, the introduction of uh, Thorazine, they let all the patients out of the mental hospitals. They thought, oh, yeah, this is great. Well, it's not great, <laughs> you know, and because no one's getting well, you're just masking the problem. I mean, I guess it's it's easier for the 
for the guy to sit there with his feet up on the desk and he can get three to four patients going through with the same charge, you know, that he would get for one patient for an hour. And, and the insurance companies are broken too. I mean, they spent all that money at Hopkins when they could have, she could have gone there for three, four days, gotten tasked at, you know, whatever the medical information they needed, send her home, let me do it at home. And we could have saved like, you know, probably $395,000 and, and we would have got, or we would have been better in the end because had, had we done it the way it was supposed to be done, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that she would have been better, you know, yeah. because the, now I understand that the brain needs that much time to, to adjust and, and reacclimate to its normal functioning. And, um, I, I, I don't see why they don't understand that, but I mean, and she's had, you know, she also went to three um, rehab facilities oh. and, you know, cause they promise, oh yeah, you'll absolutely be benzo free. And, and a, one was a beautiful place, you know, they put the chocolate on your pillow and you know, the whole thing. And when you leave there, you are benzo free. But three days later, after you're walking constantly for 24 hours a day and you can't sleep and you're sick to your stomach, then you go back on the medication. So that's another, I mean, every, I talked to one down here before I went to Benzo, before I went to um, Johns Hopkins, sorry. And it was, it wasn't, it was a hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, and um, they said, yes, absolutely guaranteed. But they guarantee that you'll be benzo free when when you leave, but they never follow up on any of their patients. So how do they know? Like, what are the, they don't really care, I guess, because if you cared, you would be doing, because I asked them for the follow-up research and they didn't have any, you know? So you, if it's not like, you know, Dr. Ashton truly cared about the people she was serving. That's why she monitored them for so long. And that's why she did everything in her power to, you know, to help them and to listen to them. Whereas now, I mean, you know, we, they don't listen to what the patients tell. I mean, they basically laugh at my wife and I when when we tell them these things. It's just like, yeah, 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 uh, okay. You know, yeah. they write little things like, you know, psychotic or whatever. Um, <clears throat> you know, severe depression and this. And, yeah, but they, they don't realize that a lot of these things, I mean, I'm even hearing stories of little kids that are getting prescribed these meds. These, my wife has a friend in, in New Jersey who, whose daughter is on, I mean, they just gave her clonopin. And, and my wife is, you know. Besides you, herself, you I, I'm sure, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's frightening. Like and once you see that, because I see that all the time. I mean, obviously the drugs are so commonly prescribed. When, when, I, when I see, you know, people getting put on these medications for contextual stresses, you know, normal life stuff, you know, not schizophrenia yeah. or genuine bipolar disorder. I mean, right, my heart right. sinks and I feel sad. And I think about, I feel like I'm watching a train crash in slow motion. And it's like, you don't want to say anything because you don't want to be like an a-hole and like bring right. it up. But it's just like, it's, it's, there's something tragic about it, you know, because it, it's once that, train leaves the station it's like you know how dangerous it can be and how hard it can be to get off i mean it's yeah yeah it's it's the most serious infliction of pain on the human race uh, like i said other than you know what happened tragically um 
some time ago, but it's, it's, I, can, I can't understand how we don't just rise up and refuse to accept it. Like, I, I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm just impulsive. And well, pe- people I shut it down, it. you know, and, and here's the other thing where it gets, you know, interesting. It's like who controls the narrative? And, you know, for a long time, the dominant narrative has been that, you know, psychiatric medications that generally, you know, they're generally safe and effective and don't talk about the risks too much because you are going to risk scaring people off their medications and, and you, you're going to cause suicide and things like that. That's, and this, and this has been promoted, you know, this is what's in the media, you know, there's different, you know, seemingly grassroots organizations like NAMI and bipolar depression Alliance and, you know, they pump out those messages as well. You know, you know, these conditions are very serious. They need to be treated. Right. Medications are needed. You know, these conditions are stigmatized. You know, be cautious about how you talk about risks. And all of these things, they don't sound that, they don't sound that bad, you know, when you, when you see them on face. But if that's the only message that's getting pushed out there and those groups are all funded by pharmaceutical money, you know, that, that also contributes to the way people see things because – People are hesitant to talk about risks of drugs, and it's it, there's there's this kind of there's this undertone of uh, there's there's it's there's almost a threat there. You know, you if you talk about these things, you're you're a dangerous person. You know, you're you're poorly informed and dangerous, and you know I definitely felt that going through my training, and I mean I, I'm I mean I've become so interested in just how how off the rails things have begun, and you know just looking like. Like how, yeah, just like you said, how, how is this essentially Holocaust occurring, you know, every single day, you know, families torn to pieces. Like, how does this happen? Gotta, you got to plug it in. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I didn't plan on using my phone. So. Yeah. yeah, sure. Um, yeah. How does this Holocaust happen? And, and no one, no one realizes it. And I guess the thing is, I mean, you mentioned the FDA before. Why doesn't the FDA, you know, take these things seriously when people are um, reporting it? It's like, because they're psych patients, you know, it's like, oh, this is just another psychiatric patient who's a hypochondriac, or maybe right. this is just someone who's, you know, the other thing that they've really spread is that everyone who complains about psychiatric medication is like a Scientologist or something like that. And it's like, you know, and... You know, you can, I mean, you can have problems. I mean, you can come from any walk of life and, and, and want to issue a complaint, but they've blown it into this thing where it's like the mm-hmm. only group of people who would ever complain about these medications have a kind of a, like a religious agenda or something like that instead of actually, you know, validating that there's, you know, people have very genuine concerns about these things. Um, so, but, you know, James, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your story and, and what happened with Kate. Do you think Kate would ever be uh, well enough, maybe in a window, to, to chat with us as well? Oh, she, she really would, wants to. Um, <clears throat> and certainly when, when the window comes, um, she, would, she would definitely um, be amenable to, you know, to sharing her story. But unfortunately, I don't know. I don't know, and neither does she, when the window is going to come. Okay. And uh, hopefully soon, you know. But, uh, I mean, I appreciate all that you're doing to, 
to spread the word and to, um, you know, to show the people that are suffering that you care about them. And, and I'm sure it's not easy. You know, I know um, Bob Whitaker has probably, you know, got, got to have guards around his house for speaking out. And, and uh, it's very difficult to, um, to speak the truth, you know, but we have to do it. I mean, soon the big pharma has such a, a huge impact on um, and a lobby that it's it's very hard to um, you know to go up against them. And no, there I mean, there's no attorneys or anything. I don't know what the what the strategy can be. Social media. To, that, that's that's my strategy. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the point. That's because they're not there. I mean, they're they're mostly in medical journals and conferences. But hopefully, if we can pump out enough of this stuff on social media that it spreads organically it will give us a platform to kind of challenge the narrative about these things yeah so i'm, I'm well we, yeah we gotta yeah. keep keep the social i mean lisa ling had a um piece <laughs> on benzos i think it was maybe her father or some one of her relatives quite some time ago so maybe we can get on uh, you know maybe she'll see one of your um your interviews and, and, you know, because that, it's very disturbing when it, it happens in your family. I mean, it's got to be just... Oh, that's like uh, an understatement. I mean, it, it's completely... I mean, it's just a tragedy, a complete tragedy, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, and so I'm not slowing down. In fact, I'm speeding up. So, you know, <laughs> I, you know if, you, if you send anyone my way, you know, if you think there's a cool podcast that I could go on or if you think that, you know, there's anyone I could talk to, I'm always looking for suggestions on how to talk to as many people as possible about this. Okay. Maybe I can get some people from Hopkins. You can talk to them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, uh, yeah. Joseph. I, I really appreciate all that you do. Thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate you coming on and you have, have a great day. Okay. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wit During Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from doctors Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion or managing your post-acute withdrawal, Come visit us at witduringpsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.